0: it's been one hell of a journey and i can vouch for the fact that you were in fact the best fucking journalist in the scene at that point there is absolutely nothing wrong with being confident can you speak a little bit to sort of how impactful having a mentor or group of mentors has been for you as you have gone through your career here my journey is very
1: unique and i think when you have a lot of kind of unique parts of your journey it's hard to find a mentor that's like had the exact same like one-on-one experiences I have a lot of various different people in my life, entrepreneurs, journalists, et cetera, who do impart their wisdom and will answer my questions when I have them. But having someone that's like, you know, the carbon copy of what I want to do, that person just doesn't exist. And I think where my perspective has changed in time is that the most thing that is useful is that everyone is making this up as they go along. It's just true that that's true everyone is making this up as they go along and honestly like as soon as you learn that as soon as you realize that life becomes a thousand times easier
0: how do young men like us optimize our lives in a way that lets us achieve success and meaning come with me as i interview top performers and delve into key areas of life habits finance psychology health relationships work creativity and business I boil the ocean of men's advice into usable wisdom in this podcast to give you the answers. My name is Blake Bottrell, and this is The Distilled Podcast. Jacob Wolf, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's uh, (laughs) it's good to reconnect after all these years. I saw you tweeting about uh, money in the bank yesterday. Who's on your uh, all-time lineup card? Ooh, that's a really good question. I, I'm super into
1: pro wrestling. I've like lapsed and relapsed back into it multiple times now. Um, the Rock and Stone Cold, obviously, I think make that list no matter what. Taker, uh, Ricky Steamboat. Do uh, you want me to think of like how I book the <laughs> matches too? Like who's nah. who's against who? Yeah, so Steamboat, Steamboat, Taker, uh, Stone Cold. The Rock, um, Ric Flair, huge fan of, uh, actually kind of like a, an unusual one, but I think he's hurt and I don't know if he'll ever come back. Um, but I really do enjoy watching him wrestle. Bobby Roode is really good. Um, uh, so I'm big fan, uh, probably trying to think like Shawn Michaels, Oh. uh, yeah, Shawn Michaels and let's see, I'll I'll end with someone fun on the men's division. Uh, Shawn Michaels and probably, I'll say Kane. I, I like, I was a huge Kane fan for a period of time. Um, yeah. Uh, and then women's, I think, like, Lita Trish, obviously. Um, Lita Trish and probably Be- Becky Lynch, Charlotte. Yeah, I'll do that. I I really I'm really happy Becky Lynch is back. Uh, post post pregnancy, I'm glad to glad to have her back in the WWE. She's fun to watch. So
0: it's a pretty stacked lineup.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a lot of debate. I've been following the debate there today that like L A Knight is like a Stone Cold Stone Cold The Rock like hybrid, and I'm always, like everybody in wrestling like takes inspiration, man. Like Seth Rollins out there doing like the pedigree, which you know is the the most famous Triple H move (laughs) ever. So like, uh,
0: there's no originality here. Like it's it's fine. It's fine. Steal like an artist. Yeah, exactly. For sure. All right. So you hail from a sort of small town outside of or outside of uh, Atlanta. You grew up with your mom. What's maybe one thing from your childhood that people need to know about you to sort of understand how you got to where you are today?
1: Yeah, I think. I, growing up, so I'm an adopted kid. I was adopted when I was uh, six months old, so I don't really remember my birth parents. I know a little bit about them. Not a great situation. Uh, My birth mom, much younger than my birth father, and my birth father had another family. Um, My birth parents uh, also had a really terrible relationship, honestly, uh, from basically my earliest memories. And I think, like, my uh, grandparents were incredibly influential in my life and, um, have been forever. My grandfather just passed, uh, about two or three months ago in April. Um, and he, he passed like three days before he was going to turn 96. And my grandmother is still alive. Um, she is going to be 90 or she just turned 94 in May. And, um, she has been, uh, she was such an influential part of my life. And I think like. I have her to thank for so much. Um, she's had Alzheimer's for the past 16 years. So I'm really, was the only grandchild that got to experience her while she was still very much cognizant. Um, uh, cause she got diagnosed when I was 10 years old and so, uh, extremely influential from teaching me how to write and sing and speak and all these like various different things, pushing me forward in ways of music and everything else, financially supporting my goals and ambitions. And being there at a time where, like, my mom post-divorce and abuse was very broken and my father was not really present in my life much at all. um, My grandparents being there and my grandmother, like, putting so much time into me uh, is extremely uh, exemplifies who I am as a person, I think. Because, like, um, in many ways, I'm a mirror image of of her. Uh, She is by far... Uh, The smartest and the strongest woman I've ever met in my entire life. Um, Extremely, extremely intelligent. If she wasn't born in the late 1920s and born in a different era, like could have gone on to probably rule the world. Like, you know, I'm not exaggerating. Like could be a woman president because just super witty, was involved in politics later in her life too. Like, um, but, you know, the... Different People felt very differently about women in politics in, in the 1950s and 1940s, than, or, or 1950s and 1960s than they do now. And, um, yeah, and also just, like, extremely strong. Uh, not many people live with Alzheimer's for 16 years, and I think that's because the, the woman inside fighting it is uh, one hell of a person. So, um,
0: yeah, extremely thankful for my grandmother in particular. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's one of those things that you hear, um... Thankfully, more often than not is when uh, there is some sort of um, unfortunate circumstances with parents that often the grandparents step in to really sort of take that role and and help drive the bus when um, maybe our parents can't uh, always take up that role all the time.
1: 100 percent. Yeah, it's uh, and it's not always I I have friends like that, too, who were somewhat raised by their grandparents. And um, it's not always the best situation. I'm very thankful that for the most part, mine was um, my grandmother's a a uh, hell of a person, very classy person and uh, always one of the best for me. So, um, yeah, I, 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 have them to
0: thank for so much, honestly. Absolutely. So talk to me then with that setup of the progression of the, uh, Jacob Wolf, semi pro gamer to journalist to now, uh, podcast and new media host. Um, how did that all come about and, uh, talk. To me a little bit about the journey through that
1: yeah so i've i've played video games in some aspects since i was really young i remember my four-year-old christmas was a game boy advance uh, my five-year-old christmas was an xbox and they've always been integral in my life my mom was really into video games um she had a playstation one and those are probably my earliest gaming memories you're playing ps1 games um and I think I really got into competitive games in 2008 and 2009 when call of duty started to become extremely popular online multiplayer and call of duty started to become super popular and I was v- very into it. And I got very good relatively quickly at modern warfare two and started playing online and MLG game battles and, uh, yeah, I like competed against some of the people who now they aren't because they've aged out of Call of Duty, but like competed against some of the people who were pros for a time um, in these ladder battles. And I don't know, I like I think now if I was a little bit younger, people understand what it means to be a programmer and that there was like some career to this. I was not supported in that aspiration at all. Um, but it did introduce me a lot to a lot of like influencers and other things that have gone on to be quite successful. The people involved with optic and phase and et cetera. Um, and I started learning some other hard skills, self-teaching hard skills about how to edit like video, edit and create content, which is all like very important to where I am now, because I still do so many of those things and I've been doing them for more than a decade, which is very abnormal for someone who is 26 years old. Um the journalism part of me started because um, when I was a teenager, I worked in the music industry for a little bit and I ran record labels, et cetera. And I made a lot of mistakes, uh, many of which I regret even all these years later. Um, But I was also, you know, I'm glad I was able to learn and kind of be stupid and be an idiot at at a young age. Um, But I, I hired a guy that, worked for me with one of my labels and in 2011 or 12, got me really into League of Legends. And I would play on my shitty little white MacBook um, with him uh, on a track bed for a while. I was not very good at League. Um, I'm okay at League now. I don't play nearly as much as I used to for a time. Um, but I did fall in love with League of Legends Esports. And in 2014, I started writing about it. And I think the getting me from the time I had written to the time I got to ESPN was extremely fast. I don't think anybody's had a journey like that. So I decided when I was in middle school that I didn't want to be there anymore. And I worked with my guidance counselor and our principals to find basically a way to accelerate my path to education and functionally like was done with high school the semester after my 10th grade year. Um, or the summer after my 10th grade year. So I did, like, basically summer school, but I advanced half a semester sooner, and that was enough credits for me to move on and do, like, do enrollment, and then eventually just do college straight up. So um, I was in my sophomore year of college, but was turning 18 years old, which is, like, a weird, very abnormal timeline. I was basically two years faster than everyone. And so I started writing about League when I was 17. Um, I got, like... Decent amount of scoops in, in the league space at that age. And then I had one that I wrote painstakingly uh, for the score esports with Neil kiel uh Do Raven, who was like a League of Legends journalist at the time and getting all published on the score who were like kind of the new big dog in the space got me recruited by Dot Esports as a contractor because Dot was really afraid of losing talent to the score um and so they like carved out some budget from another department and brought me on um i did basically exactly a year i planned it that way exactly a year at at dot that summer uh you and i actually uh went to uh the league of legends world championship or sorry league of legends uh, lcs championship in new york um in august 2015 and you'll probably remember I took an Uber to go meet Mina Kimes, the ESPN journalist, for breakfast in Williamsburg, um, and ended up uh, meeting her and then a bunch of other ESPN people in the press room. They announced after that event that they were hiring an esports editor. One of my former bosses was in the running for that esports editor job. I did not feel like it was I was qualified for that job. It certainly wasn't. Um, but I got the email to hiring manager. I cold emailed him. It ended up setting up a conversation a few weeks later. Uh, I didn't hear back, um, after that conversation in January, early January of 2016, I heard from a press person at ESPN that she was, uh, wanting to give me basically the scoop on, um, who they had hired for their Navy sports department, which, uh, was Darren Kalinsky, uh, Rod Breslau known as Slasher and Tyler Erzberger known as Fionn on fire. Um, I wrote the story. I'd actually broken the news maybe about a month earlier that they had hired Darren because he had a um, an email basically that's uh, at his former employer that said where he was going. Like they were not discreet his, in his goodbye email. So I got a leak of that and broke that he was being hired as ESPN's main guy. Um, and then I did an interview with Chad Millman over the phone, who was the editor-in-chief of ESPN at the time, about uh, who they had hired. And then maybe about a month five or six weeks after that I got a message from Darren basically with an application link for an editor job Um, there I applied for that maybe on a Wednesday Thursday and Friday I spoke to his boss uh, who wanted to bring me up to Bristol Um, I went to I flew out to Bristol on a Sunday night I took off work Monday to do all these interviews I did the entire what they call the car wash at ESPN Which is basically just like back to back to back to back to back interviews every single day job interviews with everyone. My first one was Dan, who I had talked to Dan Kaufman, who I had talked to the September before that. My last one was Chad, who was the guy that I'd interviewed about their hires. Uh, Dan asked me, I remember very distinctly, do you want to be a writer or an editor? Um, that was like the first question of his and I's like interview coffee in in the ESPN cafeteria. And I basically told him I think being an editor would be a waste of my skills. I think I have a lot to accomplish as a reporter and a writer. Um and my last one was Chad. And I went in and Chad like only had a few minutes for me. They kind of like slid me into his schedule. And he had one question for me, and it was why do Darren, Dan, and Pierre want you here so badly? And I sat there and I paused. I thought about it for a second and he's like it's okay to be confident and I said because I'm the best fucking reporter in this industry and uh I had that interview and I got the job uh, a few weeks later um I was originally supposed to stay in Austin I ended up moving to uh I ended up moving to Connecticut um replaced Slasher um who they had to let go and uh yeah i was at espn for almost 5 years uh, 4 years and 10 months i think specific no 4 years 8 months um it was i learned a lot about what to do and what not to do at espn which i'm sure we can dive into if you want to um it was really interesting i realized during the pandemic that things were changing in the gaming industry and moving away from sort of eSports being the high viewership thing to influencers being the high viewership, um, and realized that there was an opportunity to cover influencers maybe with a little bit more critical eye, um, rather than just Dick Cerdo who kind of covers them a little bit like TMZ, um, which is fine. Uh, there's a place for that too. Uh, But I think there's a little bit more, like, in-depth critical coverage. And so, and I also realized there was an opportunity to build gaming media for uh, the less involved gaming folks, like the, you know, the people that aren't super hardcore into gaming, um, especially post-Fortnite and the mainstreamification of, like, gaming more broadly and it becoming very culturally relevant in a way that it had not been prior to Fortnite being so mainstream. Uh, and producing basically podcasts and television um for the kind of the big distributors of the world Netflix Hulu Spotify et cetera um saw an opportunity there uh and started to overcome literally within a month of my department being laid off from ESPN and have
0: been doing this now for two and a half years, which is pretty nuts. It's been uh, one hell of a journey, and I can vouch for the fact that you were, in fact, the best fucking journalist in the scene at that point. So uh, there is absolutely nothing wrong with being confident. One of the uh, threads that I think I would pull on there based on what you're talking about is this idea of connections and mentors and the people that have been um, particularly influential in your journey um, especially once you got into the journalism side of things, can you speak a little bit to sort of how impactful, um, having a mentor a group of mentors has been for you, uh, as you have gone through your career here? You know, it's an interesting question because
1: I remember a period of time, it had to be like 2017 or 2018, maybe about a year into the ESPN job that I felt like I had, like sort of stalled out a little bit. I don't think the work had per se, but I I felt like I had hit a wall, and I was like very eager to try to find like a you know a mentor. Um, I got an opportunity during all of that to like get lunch with Adam Schefter, the NFL reporter. He you know works at ESPN to this day. Um, when well, they eventually recruited Adrian Wojnarowski, I talked to him a little bit as well. Um, yeah, you know, both of those guys are like the roster newsbreakers in the NBA and the NFL, respectfully, and. um, and I would like, you know, I talk. I would talk very frequently to other journalists and, and, outside of gaming, Mina Kimes. Mina's been really kind of me my entire career from that day that we met in New York all those years ago to even to present. Um, I've gotten to know like over time, Ariel Holani. I'm supposed to be catching up with Ariel this week. The MMA journalist, Ariel's amazing. Um, great product of Canada, by the way. Uh, you, you should be proud. Um, but uh, Ariel's wonderful. Um and I think like it was always hard for me to find like a more traditional mentor like somebody I'd meet with once a month or whatever because I felt like like gaming and esports wasn't taken very seriously by a lot of people outside of our our space. You know, Richard Lewis was the the esports journalist was really helpful to me at the very beginning of my career. He vouched for me, vouched for me to get that first contract gig with Dot. Um. You know, he made some really important introductions for me, not to sources, but to like other people in the space from a business perspective very early on. Um, But I would say it's been hard. I think my journey is very unique. And I think when you have a lot of kind of unique parts of your journey, uh, it's hard to find a mentor that's like had the exact same, like one-on-one experiences. I have a lot of various different people in my life, entrepreneurs, journalists, et cetera, who, do impart their wisdom and will answer my questions when I have them. Um, but having someone that's like, you know, the carbon copy of what I want to do, that person just doesn't exist. And I think where my perspective has changed in time is that the most thing that is useful is that everyone is making this up as they go along. It's just true. Like that, that's true. Everyone is making this up as they go along and honestly like as soon as you learn that as soon as you realize that life becomes a thousand times easier like you just have to have really good principles you have to be a principled person don't lie don't cheat don't steal like don't don't do things to harm other people approach co- every conversation with empathy and if you do that in life like you'll be okay even if you make mistakes like as long as they're honest
0: mistakes that's important yeah I think this is this is a quote of a quote of a quote but I heard, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, uh, Chris Williamson who runs the Modern Wisdom podcast. Um, I'm not. Okay. But Chris was talking about, uh, how he has a friend that was telling him that he's basically convinced that, uh, it's really just idiots all the way up and it's just idiots with more budget and more influence. And that as the quicker you realize that, like you're saying, that's how you sort of figure out how to navigate your way through things.
1: Yeah. I, I just think like intellect is, wisdom is valuable, but intellect is more valuable because if you can like kind of watch your way through things, like if you can watch your way through things, you'll be successful long-term. There's not like some secret key to success ever. It's just, yeah. It's just like being able to like approach, being adaptable, being able to approach every situation with like empathy and logic and like, just trying to figure it out but more than anything. that's That's been the biggest thing in my career.
0: So Overcome and your podcast visionaries are is branded as a uh, focus on gaming and, and influencers, as you said, a new media and um, a shift a little bit away from esports for the sort of uninformed. Can you talk very quickly about the sort of implosion that we're seeing in the esports scene right now after uh what is probably six to eight years of uh, venture capital funding sort of blowing up in everybody's faces?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a mix of two things. It's really, it boils down pretty simply to like cart before the horse, right? Like um, the esports space was thought to be like the next big thing in, in sports. You know, I remember Daryl Morey, the GM of the Philadelphia 76ers, saying, and and I love Daryl, but he said, like, basically, the next big sports or the biggest sports in the world will eventually be basketball, soccer, and esports. And the thought process there was soccer is internationally huge already, um, very relevant, uh, especially in Europe. Um, And, you know, basketball is growing in China and other parts of the world already quite successful in the Western or in the Western Hemisphere, North America and Canada and growing elsewhere, and esports is, you know, gaming, it's accessible from everywhere. I think where the plot was lost is the fact that esports, I've said this before in writing and elsewhere, so I'm parroting myself, but like esports is, uh, you have to think about gaming as an upside down pyramid, where like the top of the pyramid basically is anyone who plays games in any form, mobile, whatever, right, like mobile, computer, console, like at least once a month, and then you start doing like the go to the bottom of the pyramid, the smallest like user base, and that's the esports player. And there's like layers and layers and layers that you're like losing people, right? As you filter down, basically. I don't think people thought about that ever. Like total addressable market thrown straight out the window, basically, for so many of these esports places. And I also just think that esports is largely inaccessible. Uh, I know you said it'd be quick, but it's largely inaccessible. It, you know, to have a gaming PC, it's rather expensive. Not expensive or not accessible in any means for 90% of Americans. And I think like that just like boils down to your ability to to get into the weeds. Uh, and lastly, I think like it's just people pitch this, these companies, these sports teams in particular, like they were tech companies with crazy valuations and worth million or whatever. which was just like more than like a, you know, mediocre ML, MLS team which is nuts, uh, because the MLS does like double viewership, the LCS in any given day, um, and I think like, it's just, it lost complete focus basically of all of this and yeah, and now we're now the entire industry is paying the price basically for years of snake oil salesmanship and basically no one's stopping and going like, Hey, maybe we should take this a little bit slower. I think it'll correct. I think it will be much more of the trajectory of a traditional sport where it, like, you know, organically grows. You know, like think back to the NFL when they were wearing leather helmets, uh, that kind of stuff, right? Like, it will get there eventually, but like it was, it went way faster than the actual product could support.
0: So what you're saying is we really need to uh, blame Martin Scully for trying to buy a team in 2014 and blowing up the eSports world.
1: <laughs> yeah, to- totally, yes. I, uh, I I love Martin Scully, Craig. <laughs> Great guy. That's sarcasm, by the way, just for people that don't see my face. Uh, yeah. yeah, you're right, though. Like, that's one of the points where everybody got really scared and just started raising a ton of money that they didn't need.
0: Yeah, so now you're on to sort of influencers as a vertical, like you're talking about, and and, and having all these conversations, switching mediums to podcasts. We'll get into some of the medium stuff later and sort of the the progression of, of where the world of the internet is in the last, like, six months to a year. But... Um, swapping over to sort of these influencers as a vertical and having these conversations with them what's been um some of the biggest pickups for you in terms of that change from esports hardcore gaming into the um sort of pseudo celebrity nature of, of the gaming influencer or new media influencer
1: you know i think it was already happening before the pandemic i already thought like influencers grow were growing pretty significantly Uh, there's something just innately more personable about them i think you know they're interesting people they're coming to you from their like bedroom or their second bedroom or home office or whatever right like it's very casual and i think that's appealing to a younger audience who like likes parasocial relationships and wants to feel connected to the people that they watch and consume entertainment from i think the pandemic though like if we're using a fire analogy like the pandemic just poured lighter fluid on it and or gasoline and it just like went Absolutely bonkers. Um, You know, the pandemic, thinking back to it, uh, the isolation, people kind of being isolated for a year or so um, from social interaction because it took about a year, a little bit more than a year to have wide distribution of the vaccines, um, uh, which, you know, kind of reset the social social life as we've seen in the past years as people like adapted a little bit more to going back to what life was like pre-pandemic socially. And... I think for a lot of young people, especially school-aged people, um, middle school, high school, college, um, they found themselves very like socially rep- repressed and unable to like find ways to socialize. It's plat- a gro- growth platform of places like Twitch and Discord and elsewhere. And I think the influencers benefited from that a lot because for the people that were really lonely and maybe they're like social architecture was like going to school and that's how they had to socialize with people but it like they didn't really have communities they found their communities through twitch influencers in particular who were like live streaming on a frequent basis every single day which is an at-home activity and i think that it created this bond that was really really helpful uh to people they like you know This I'm being a little exaggerative, but I don't don't think this is far off. I think kept some people alive, right? Like, for their mental health, like, to find themselves in these communities. And it's only continued. And so, to me, like, not only just people like Mr. Beast, but, like, you know, Ludwig and Hasan Piker and Moist Critical and others have, like, gone on to exactly what you said. Like, they're modern-day celebrities. And it was because, like, They were the way that people could connect and I can't, I don't think that can be understated. The connection that it was able to have and the, the impact on people's social lives. Now there's a lot of negatives to that. There's like parasocial relationships and people being super creepy and like a stalker like flying from somewhere in Europe to like Amaranth's house outside of Houston and like showing up multiple times, like it's gotten really fucking weird. And that's why people like me exist, to, like, cover the really fucking weird shit and, like, get down to the—boil it down to a science. Um, but at the same time, like, it did something that I don't think, without the pandemic, was repl- replicable. I do think it would have continued. I do think celebrity culture would have came to, to Twitch and streamers, et cetera, eventually. But I think in, in 2020, the pandemic, like, like I said, poured gasoline on that fire.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely something to be said for— The sort of mass adoption of these like social relationships that we were deprived from for three years and, and being told that we couldn't really see our friends or, or whatever it was, or finding new friends or, or like you said, just finding that community. And, and Twitch has forever been sort of the breeding ground for, um, its own little pocket of internet culture that has sort of spilled out into other parts of, of what I'll call like the new internet basically. But yeah. Okay, so I think there's a parallel between sort of your life or (laughs) Jesus Christ. I think there's a parallel between your career and sort of life in general right now in that young people are sort of criticized for being ambitious. Do you have any particular, Um, coping mechanisms that have helped you deal with some of the, um, not necessarily harassment, but, uh, discouragement and, and whatever else that has come your way in your time, especially as a journalist. And now moving over to, um, starting your entrepreneurial journey.
1: It's really important to maintain a base level of confidence. And I won't say that it's been easy. You know, I've been a public figure now for almost 10 years. Uh, I'm approaching that 10 year mark here shortly. And the... Through all of that, I have had moments of harassment and just, like, dogpiling on the internet that have been really hard. Some of it just completely undeserved. Like, I didn't say anything. I just did my job, and it's, like, been extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. And, like, all of those things build a little bit of a thick skin, and when you come out through them, on the other side of them, it builds a level of confidence. You know, I have definitely have some haters in this world uh, that like the biggest criticism they have for me is that I'm like confident or arrogant um, and they're right. Like I think it's okay to be confident. I did. I just, you know, sort of separate the two. Confidence is like when you believe in yourself and it doesn't affect your ability to treat other people and, and how you treat other people. Arrogance is when you are really confident but it does affect your social life and your ability to treat other people right to me i never have the moment ever of when there's someone i meet and i'm like oh how many twitter followers do they have or i start like drilling down into like their their notability i don't give a shit man like it's totally fine to just like have normal relationships with normal people that aren't public figures that you like you don't have to make everything about notability and influence all the time I do know people who are like that, that are arrogant, and it's like, oh, I'll I'll only talk to you if you have this, this, and this, and, like, the whole thing is very transactional for them. I try not to be like that. I try to be super empathetic to other people. I try to approach things with empathy all the time and try to just, like, help people. It's, like, a very Southern thing of of me. It's one of the things I have taken from where I grew up Um, without expecting anything in return. It's totally cool. I think there's like a world where people, you know, can become takers and you want to cut those people out of your life. But at the same time, it's like you have to maintain confidence in yourself as a young person. Because like if you don't, if you don't believe in yourself, I've said this my entire career. I still believe it. I think it it plays out. If you don't believe in yourself, other people can't believe in you. Like you have to believe in yourself first. And I have had a lot, a lot of people tell me over my career not as many anymore because I'm a little bit older and I've been doing this for a while, but I had a lot of people early in my career when I would express my ambition at ESPN in particular, that would be like, Oh, well this person didn't do this until this age, you know? And like this person didn't do this till this age. And I get it like preaching patience because it's important to be patient, but also like recognize that like, yeah, that person also didn't start their career until they were 26. I started mine at 17, right? Like it, Nobody's whatever the the age is. It doesn't matter. Not everybody's on the same timeline. Exactly. Like everybody moves at a different pace. I like to think I'm like a fairly smart dude that like is a sponge that I absorb information pretty quickly. And, uh, so I adapt. I'm really, really quick to adapt, really quick to learn. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, to me, it's like, I just had to believe in myself the entire time. I had to believe in myself. Um, and, uh, Thankfully, I I have a pretty hard shell now. Uh, There are some things that bother me, but not many uh, anymore. Um,
0: I'm able to get through a pretty cool guy. Yeah, I think the confidence is definitely an exceptional part of it. One of my sort of favorite quotes that i picked up over the last like year or so um, is from a guy named Alex Hormozzi. And he just says, um, confidence is, is not shouting affirmations in the mirror. It's having an undeniable stack of proof. That you are who you say you are so that 10 years of built up confidence um from having done this for so long i can i can see where that that mountain stacks up to where you sort of have that thicker skin for sure
1: but always want to learn right like i like never i never approach a situation thinking i know it all because the minute you reach that yeah you know, like I know some of my peers in esports journalism who have literally had in their contracts like edit clauses like you can't edit me. Like what the hell man? Like that's super like screwy. Like I love love editors. I've worked with <laughs> some really great ones over the years. I'm still working with one Larry Burke who's a former editor from Sports Illustrated and edits my newsletter. Um and Larry's awesome. Larry and I get along a lot. We're we're kindred spirits in many different ways, despite a pretty significant age gap and and uh, career experience between the two of us. And uh, we talk philosophically, philosophically about a lot of things because he's been in the newspaper and magazine business for so long. And um, I'm always learning, learning from him and learning from other people. I'm like constantly just trying to learn new things. Um. And, like, just because I have, like, high intellect and adaptability doesn't mean that I, like, know everything. Um, and so, yeah, the minute that you stop learning is the minute that, you, that you've you've lost the plot, I think.
0: You sort of have to have these difficult conversations all the time as a journalist, whether it's being involved in things like uh, the Activision Blizzard lawsuits or or um, sort of Saudi Arabia's takeover of, of esports in the last couple of years. It feels like so many people just sort of refuse to flat out have any of these difficult conversations anymore. How do we sort of continue to make sure that we're having these sort of important, but uncomfortable conversations in a world where the internet's sort of boxed us off into our own little area.
1: It's going to make me sound like old man screams a cloud and I don't mean <laughs> for it to, um, I, cause I am a zoomer technically by age, I am a zoomer. Um, but I do see. And I do think the pandemic contributed to this a little bit, too. I do see, like, a lot of social awkwardness in my younger peers. Um, They don't like confrontation. They don't really handle it particularly well. I, I didn't handle it very well at their age either, to be fair. But, like, at least I, like... Rather than me handling it, me handling it poorly was not avoiding it. Actually, me handling confrontation poorly is basically just sticking out my fucking middle finger and just being an asshole, um, which is fine. Um, I could be better about it, but like that's you know whatever. Uh, it's not a bad no, not a bad instinct to have. Uh, just gotta mold it. It's gotta be a little bit nicer when you when you start acting that way, um, even if it's your gut instinct. I think it's really tough um, because like digital media in a nutshell, like rewards just this like high value, a churn. And so like you waste all your mental energy as a young journalist, you waste your mental energy, uh, turning out all these pieces every single day. And then there's the one that like gets you into a sticky situation where like you have to stand up for yourself and you're like, you're just exhausted. So I'm like, empathetic to the fact that that's the, you know, the name of the game at the moment, but like really, really gotta have a spine. And it's really difficult too. honestly, it's really difficult when a lot of the editors at these places also don't have a spine and also like there's no, no legal, like legal backing at all. Like a lot of these places like just fold and take down the piece the minute that there's any pushback, like no, like, all right, go ahead, sue us. Right? Like, it's just really sad. like the way the digital media has come and I, and I don't have the right answer to your question because it's just not, I don't know. I think about it a lot and uh, maybe I'm wrong. I I hope I really do hope that there's like a, a breed of journalists that like comes out of college and builds careers that are, you know, covering the digital media internet landscape that are just like super confident. Fuck you. Honestly, like it's, it's, That's really, really important. Um, but I just, I'm not so confident that's going to happen right now. I I haven't met a lot of them and I meet a lot, a lot of students and a lot of recent grads in this space all the time. I try to help folks and I'm just, I'm not too confident that that's there yet, but I, I hope I'm wrong.
0: Is there a chance that long form content and sort of podcasts are part of the antidote to that, to have those conversations in an extended format where there's no hiding?
1: I'm not as pessimistic about long-form content as many of my peers are. You know, I frequently hear older journalists say, like, and older content creators say, like, "Oh, like uh, TikTok's killing the way that we consume media," and I don't think that's true. Um, it's not. TikTok has a very like specific fix, and I am as guilty of this forever, just sitting there and scrolling through TikTok for like a half hour, an hour. But like that doesn't. Rep- satiate or replace the place in my life for like youtube videos or netflix documentaries or like anything else that's like you know longer (laughs) longer than a half hour uh it's uh, no like the it's it's not a replica by like or it's not a replacement in my media digest um and i do think as this generation of like internet first zoomers uh gen z grow up they're going to, I see this right in front of my eyes statistically right now, too. They are they are aging into more serious content, which is a good thing. It's a good thing, a very good thing. And we have some really important people to thank for that, like the commentary channels on YouTube, like Ludwig's uh, Mogul Mail and Hassan Piker and Moist, uh, Moist Critical, et cetera, who do that type of content. But, you know, I'm very thankful for what they're doing for the space because it's making my job and others easier because they're like kind of almost a, a gateway to me um in terms of you know basically the, what they're doing is like very light serious content and then what you get to someone like me who's a little bit more hardcore and critical and um that's good that's a good thing um uh, and so yeah i think like long form content is going to continue um and i think that mm, how it changes like the media we digest is a really interesting thought um the jury's still out honestly have my ambitions are to be a part of that, uh, to, you know, be a part of that antidote uh, in in a lot of ways. Um, I have a lot of big ideas about how to do that.
0: I'm 100% with you and it's part of the reason I'm sort of found myself back on the same journey that, that you are again now too. So can you sort of, in our estimation of the fact that this is the world, the way the world is going, um, of these independent creators, can you sort of give me the, Steelman argument both for and against sort of legacy media, the Washington Posts or the, the New York Times or the CNNs of the world. Um, can you give me the Steelman argument for and against them sort of controlling the flow of information?
1: What newspapers do better than everybody else is extremely good at fact-checking, extremely good at fact-checking and flow of information and understanding what's real and what isn't, being able to discern that. I recently had a conversation in the past couple of months with a very successful content creator. Again, this is private. I don't want to dive into like all the details, but it was a very, very successful content creator, uh, like hundreds of millions of views every single month. Privately approached me and asked me to look into something that they saw on a TikTok that was concerning to them because they have some relevance to the subject and they needed to know if they needed to act. And I did a little bit of digging. It took me like a few hours. It was totally fine. Um, and I realized that most of what was said in the TikTok was bullshit. And like completely misconstrued. By a very big TikTok influencer who has a lot of influence. And he was just wrong. The, the influencer was straight up wrong about what he was saying. So I relayed that to the creator. it's all good. The creator moved on with their lives. Nobody ever heard about it. Because like it was just wrong. I'm glad that instinct exists for that creator to come ask me as someone they trust, uh, to come dig into something. Um, but unfortunately most people don't do that and just repost and parlay misinformation and just screw the whole thing up. And that is what WAPO and the times and others are really, really good at. Um, and I think we don't need to lose sight of that. I mean, it's, it's really important to what we're building to overcome which there's a lot in the works right now, what we're really building to Overcome, for that to be an integral part of what we do, no matter the medium, podcast, podcast, video, written, it doesn't matter, all of it, uh, that really, really rigorous journalism approach. Yeah, of course. Um, against, I would say that a lot of these legacy media publications, they're old and not adaptable. Um, they... It's kind of crazy that, like, what the Washington Post does on TikTok is considered to be so innovative. It's really good work. I think Dave Jor- Jorgensen's really funny. You know, for those that are listening to this or are unfamiliar with what they do on TikTok, they sort of like do skits around news and uh, they share news with the TikTok audience via skits, funny skits. Um, it's like a small team, I think, of like three or four people that do this over at the Post. Um, and that's about as innovative as I've seen in newspaper on on uh, social media platforms. Um, it's great, but it's not enough. And, uh, you know, the New York Times is becoming sort of a, a games company, you know, actually, uh, weirdly enough. Um, acquired Wordle, you know, the Spelling Bee, uh, New York Times Crossword, um, super high mobile downloads, good, you know, good revenue against it. because you have to pay for, to, to play those things. A lot of people really love them. Um, they're not innovating where none of these companies are innovating where the audience should go, like where the audience is. Go, you have to go to where they are. You have to go to them on YouTube. You have to go to them on TikTok. You have to go to them elsewhere, right? And and about as far as they've gotten into that is podcasting, right? Like I listen to the Daily, fantastic podcast. I listen to the Journal, which is the Wall Street Journal and Gimlet's podcast. Um, still not far enough. And a lot of them approach it with like, hey, you know, a uh, social media person that we just hired that's in your 20s, figure out TikTok for us. And it's like, that's just not how it works. Like you have to be, it's not just a marketing problem. It is the content problem. The content and the marketing go hand in hand and you have to figure out how they blend together to create the content for the format. Um, that's my argument against, is they're just like, it takes way too many approvals in the process to get things up, up and up and up. Um, it's not, exclusive to Legacy Media you know I remember it's like January or February so maybe people remember this TikTok trend I I'm very in tune with it cuz I keep up but also my fiance is on TikTok a lot so there's like a, a, a trend Thanksgiving week here in America about uh, doubloons, which are these like whole things with like cats, like showing their paws and each one of their like toe beans on their on their foot were, was considered a doubloon. And it was this whole trend for about a week where it was this like specific song that was really funny. And they were showing off these, you know, cat paws. So people with their cat paw pictures and you'd get X number of doubloons. And then somebody would come along, you could trade your doubloons for a dragon or something else. Like it was really funny. <laughs> this is really funny in like no- in November, it was great. Great. Thanksgiving week, we were in Atlanta with my family when this was happening. I remember we'd come home and we'd open up TikTok and, you know, here's a doubloon or whatever. And, <laughs> and it'd be somebody's cat's feet. Uh, and then in like February, we were scrolling and we saw Panera Bread post something about doubloons. Four months later, how long did it take for that approval? <laughs> the social media person at Panera bread oh, to get no, the approval man. to post oh, something about God. the balloons four months after the trend oh, boy. in like February when it was in November. And, and I'm just like, I mean, that's the same problem with legacy media. It's just like too many approvals to get to the top to be like, Hey, we're trying something different. And, uh, and that's the problem. That's why you see like influencers, et cetera, being more successful is because they're more nimble.
0: Continuing with this conversation of, of sort of new media and the the direction of the internet, the, sort of saga of the downfall of Twitch and Reddit in the past uh, month or two here. Um, I tend to typically subscribe to Hanlon's Razor, which basically just says never attribute to malice, which you can instead attribute to stupidity. So how much do you think... um, I heard you talk on the podcast with Zach and Devin. How much of this is like an inevitability of the pricing model of the internet and how much of it is sort of these companies losing the boat on their audiences?
1: I think it's almost all the inevitability of the pricing of the internet. Twitter has the same problem, by the way. Like, uh, Elon Musk is very quickly figuring out that Twitter's a shit company from a financial perspective and, like, trying to figure out how how this works. Um, you know, all these companies innovated, but nobody, like... None of the innovators, none of the CEOs, founding CEOs, et cetera, like really ask the question, how do we make money? Um, and honestly, what's so sad about it more than anything is that these companies are really vital to the way the internet works. Those three companies, Twitch, Reddit, and Twitter, uh, Twitter is like, you know, it's a fraction of the size of Facebook. Facebook is the most important social media company in the world, mostly because it's global um and it's like used in other parts of the world that aren't the west western part of the world where twitter is more dominant um or where twitter is more relevant Uh, facebook's still very dominant um but you know facebook's more global uh with twitter i think like it is there's like no way to monetize it effectively you're not going to get people to pay for the extra features I do because I'm a content creator, but like that I'm the exception of the rule, not the rule. And uh, you could maybe take the post.news approach, but I don't I don't think so. I'm on post.news right now. It's cool. Basically for people unfamiliar with what post.news is, social media platform that's like supposed to be a little bit more civil than Twitter, longer discussions, etc uh what they have is a point system and you can buy points you can load up your wallet with microtransactions and you can basically like if say you don't pay for the wall street journal or the new york times or the washington post you want to read a wall street journal new york times or washington post article the idea here functionally and not every publication's got on board with this is that you can like pay you know 50 cents to read the one article or whatever rather than paying 10 to 15 dollars a month for the subscription and you just read the one article the thing that interests you um i don't think that works on twitter either. I just don't think there's a way to monetize Twitter effectively. Same goes for Reddit, right? Like it's, there's just not like, there's not a functional way to monetize Reddit either. Um, and like, I don't know, like they they have the same problem. Twitch's problem is a little bit more unique in the sense that their cost is just enormous, right? Like live streaming high fidelity video, is really, really tough and really expensive. And they, like, invented the systems of how to do this. You know, I've interviewed before Jonathan Shipman and Michael Osare, who are some of the early engineers at Justin TV uh, that helped build the system that is now Amazon Web Services IBS, uh, Internet or uh, what is it, Interactive Video Services. That's what it is. Um, and Twitch invented that. And even the base cost, the discounted cost from Amazon, is super expensive to run, More, way more than normal web hosting. And Twitch has gotten so big that, like, and they said this last year, um, Dan Clancy said this, now their CEO, previously their president, he said this in a blog post, and it was very unpopular, but I understand, like, his point. Granted, I think their communication strategy has been awful, um, but nonetheless, like, he basically said that it like uh, cost them like a ton of money because they have a bunch of streamers who have like one to two views, you know, but they're sitting there, they're costing the same amount of money as the big streamers, right. That actually make them money. And so like, that's their pickle is like, what do you just say? Like you can't stream unless you're X number of popular on another platform. Like, is that your fix? I don't like that fix because then one. it like just limit opportunity from everybody else. But like, that's kind of part of the problem is that Twitch is it's just a money sink. Like for every person that hits go live in OBS, like they're costing you a lot of money every second they're live. And I think like, that's, that's the problem. It's, uh, and at some point I do think it's going to get way more hairy than it is now. You know, Amazon started paying more attention to it after a reorg about two years ago. I wrote a piece about this called the Amazonification of Twitch, and Amazon started paying a little bit more attention after a reorg about two years ago, and when that started to happen, things started to get a lot more critical for them. And, and I do think we'll see some pretty drastic changes on Twitch in the, in the years coming forward because Amazon's going to want to start want to start trying to figure out a path to profitability. What does the
0: crystal ball of of Jacob Wolf say for how we're consuming content in the next five years? We've seen sort of a crazy shift. I mentioned earlier in the last six months to a year or so of of sort of an uptick in, in podcast content. Obviously, the uh, whole AI world kicked off six to eight months ago. Now the Reddit API changes, crazy social media updates. Apple just launched or announced their new VR headset that they didn't call once in the two-hour keynote. They didn't mention VR once for a VR headset. What's your... What's your crystal ball telling you about how people from a macro sense sort of consume content in the next five years?
1: It's gonna be incredibly decentralized. Um, And I don't use that word in the way that people in Bitcoin use it. Um, It's gonna be incredibly decentralized. The social internet is going to die. Um, Your gateway to content right now and has been for the past 15 years or so is you find content on a social media platform, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, and then it directs you to somewhere else newspapers, YouTube, whatever it may be, wherever the, the content's hosted. Um, podcast that habit is going to die in mass because of what's happening at these social media platforms you see with Facebook and the issues that they were having and they, they worked out a deal, but like the issues they were having with, with having to pay for content in Australia. They're now too. going to have to do the same thing in yep. Canada. Yep, that's all I was about to Google say. And just now having to deal like with the same. Two in...
0: days ago, they said, "Fuck you! We're getting rid of links. You can't put your stuff on our platforms anymore."
1: And they're going to have to work out a deal with Canadian government. It's going to cost them money, which will impact uh, in, impact the service. Twitter's going through its own thing with Elon, like trying to figure out how to make this thing profitable, and it's just terrible business from a monetization perspective. Even though it's a vital business to the way that people consume media and how they get access to information, uh, Twitter is a great platform for that but a bad platform is to be a business person um going to go through the same facebook's launching uh i think this friday a new twitter competitor called threads by instagram um that's supposed to be very similar to twitter i don't think that fixes the problem um but it's, it's the same thing i think it's going to look less like that and it's going to look more like discord actually um i think uh, alex breen on my podcast said this recently but i agree with him it's going to be that there are Discord servers for specific topics. Some of them are going to be public directory. Most of them are not. You're going to have to find links in other places of the internet to go find these things, and that's where the information is going to be. And I'm not excited about that at all. I, I think it's actually a really, really important like, and difficult challenge. We're thinking about it every single day. We're working on some stuff to Overcome that will help us, knock on wood, get uh, our consumers off of Twitter and onto platforms where we have control, um, not just to control. I don't want their information. I don't really care about their information. I'm more so care about their ability for them to access my information and reliably access my information and my work. Um, and that's really, really tough. This is going to be a very hard transition for people who have built their namesakes on Facebook and Twitter and other places as the means to, to funnel their content. And I don't think everybody's ready for it. Like there's gonna be a lot of content creators and journalists and others who are not gonna have jobs. Like they're just gonna get slapped because their their entire engagement basically centers around their success on social media. And I think the social internet's gonna die. You're gonna have to be really good. You're gonna have to be a very good marketer to be a successful content creator or journalist in in twenty twenty four and twenty twenty five and beyond. And um, it's a challenge. It's a really, really difficult challenge. Um thankful to have people around me that are gonna add it. Um, and innovative about it, but even I'm worried just because it's it's a lot of work.
0: Yeah, is there anything that you've sort of picked up as a bridge to the gap in the meantime now that you've sort of started this being out on your own for the last two years? Is there anything that's sort of come up as you have to become an expert content marketer alongside your team? as opposed to the previous distribution channels that you had of, of um, just being on the written side of things? Is there sort of a big revelation to you in the last couple of years of like, oh, this is where we really need to be focusing our energy?
1: It's not one specific platform. It's just like, it's actually kind of getting back to the basics of the early internet. Yeah, you know, the early internet, I think about this actually with my grandmother because my grandmother was a perfect example of this. I remember in the early aughts, my grandmother like being super into email. I remember how she'd get information someone would email it to her there'd be email lists and email groups and other ways to get content to her right and that was how she would find it pre-facebook pre-twitter pre pre any of the other social media platforms being like hyper successful it would be like hey like i'm on this list this email list with a bunch of other women that are into this subject and like they forwarded this thing to me and now i'm reading this thing and now i'm telling you about it i remember that interaction very distinctly that's what we're going back to and i think like that's the, the you know whether that be discord whether that be newsletters, etc., like a more controlled means of access to information. Again, it's scary because it's going to make a lot of people uneducated because they're so used to the social internet being a part of what the way to get their content. And AI is like, in my opinion, AI is going to kill search as we know it right now too, because like AI enabled search is going to stop link directing to all the SEO driven traffic. And it's just going to scrape and go, here's a bubble From Google at the top of your feed. Here's a bubble that shows you every bit of information that you need really quickly And that's gonna kill a bunch of digital media websites, too Some of them deserve it because they build bad businesses. Some of them don't Um, The journalists don't deserve it period. They're just trying to do their jobs and I'm empathetic to the you know, the real-life human beings Um, We've seen stuff like this before You know uh, Facebook made a pretty significant algorithm change in 2016 that basically squashed a lot of the big websites like Mike and some of the others that had like cropped up basically because they were like got some visibility boost from Facebook and then Facebook said screw this we're not doing this anymore um especially in the wake of 2016 election like I think a lot of Facebook was like oh we we don't want these problems any, anymore we don't want to deal with it and they made pretty significant changes that, that uh impacted content more broadly and and so it's not new per se um, but it's hard. It is very challenging. And I think for me, like, it's not, oh, now we're going to move to Blue Sky and now we're going to move to Mastodon and like all these other platforms. There isn't one platform that's going to fix this issue. Uh, you're just going to have to be really, really good at your distribution. And you're going to have to think every single day as a content creator about how you funnel people off of social media to something that you control Patreon, email, Substack, you know, Beehive, it doesn't matter, any of them. Um, something where you have control over that list and you have the ability to engage people directly. Uh, via email, via Discord, via other means.
0: Yeah, there's a reason every single person on Twitter that I follow that has any sort of influence now is like, please sign up for my email list. Please join my newsletter. Like, it's it's coming, and so some people are preparing, and I think other people, like you said, are gonna get sort of slapped in the face. So, I think sort of rounding out the the end here, a couple more questions, but I think there's a lot of young guys that are maybe scared to start things because they're. Maybe, I mean, I know they're afraid of failing at things. And I notice even, and in, like, obviously for myself, but for you, there's been a sort of huge change in your demeanor watching the podcast from episode 10 to episode 50. You gave some sort of very insightful um, context to a listener on the episode with Zach and Devin um, a couple weeks ago, just about experimenting um, when you're like starting out and like, that's when you can, um, afford to fail the most, can you sort of reiterate that in the context of getting over that initial hump as you, uh, start a new hobby or a new project?
1: Yeah. So basically the listener was asking us, so the context of, and I took the question rather than Devin and Zach, but the listener was asking us to so the context of Kick, the new streaming platform that's, uh pretty controversial because it's like main face of the platform right now is aiden ross the you know the white supremacist or he's not a white supremacist but he's a, a stupid he's a stupid dude that platforms a bunch of other bad people like to... white supremacists correct white supremacists andrew andrew take go down the list right like it's it's bad and uh and the context was basically like this person managed vtubers and was like trying to figure out Kind of what we, what you just asked me before. That's like, why are the plat, what platform do you go to, and do you, do you try a kick? Like, is it worth trying to just like work through all the issues at Twitch to get boost visibility, right? Because it's a bigger market, bigger website, and that was the question. And basically, my answer to that was like, you know, when you're new, experiment all you want, because the more and more eyeballs you have, the more and more expectation it is that you know everything, which none of us do. None of us know everything. We, I literally said earlier in this podcast, everybody's making it up as they go along. And that is true. And more than anything else, I think when you have less eyeballs on you, experiment, try new things. It's okay to fail. Learn from your failures. When you fail, take notes of what you did wrong. Take notes, think philosophically about what you did wrong and and think big picture about what you did wrong. And then next time you try something, iterate with that knowledge. Failure is an important part of what you do. And everyone is scared of failure. Doesn't matter if you're the most successful person in the world, doesn't matter if you're, you know, this is your first endeavor. Everyone's afraid of failure. I'm afraid of failure. Everyone is. Biggest thing is being able to find good coping me- mechanisms that help you work through that have a good support system build a good support system have good mental health healthcare providers too I mean, Therapists therapist therapists and psychs go a long way um and try new things uh, and try new things when people don't care about you like as a content creator at, at first uh because if you're if you're trying something when there's no one watching it, it's like it's like the statement of like uh, you know if a forest falls in the trees and there's nobody in the forest, like did they did it actually fall? Because no one heard it, right? Like it still fell technically, it, yeah. the tree still yeah. fell, but at the same time, like nobody heard it, so like it's kind of whatever, right? It, it, <laughs> it, it, it's fine. Um, and I think about it that way too. Like when you're when you're small, you you know you're gonna maybe you get a little bit of cris- criticism, but it's not as much as when you're big and you fail at something. Um, so try new things when when you're on your come up because uh,
0: you'll be thankful that you did. You'll learn a lot of lessons. So we're, we're no stranger to some of the sort of nonsense talking points about, um, first person shooters and gaming and leading to violence and all that stuff. But I think in the last couple of years, as I've been reflecting, I think there's potentially some room for a discussion around the addiction to video games and some of the weaponization of predatory tactics from game developers to continue to get people to play their games mass on scale because obviously that's how they make money how important are some like gaming role models just off the top of my head like dr k or like zaryu or like dr lupo how how important are those people to the gaming world of promoting sort of a healthy balanced lifestyle and still being able to enjoy playing video games
1: mmm. I can tell you listen to the, the, uh, the episode I did with the doctors. Cause that's uh, that was a big topic talking to Rachel Cowart and Kate McGee because yeah, that's, it's why they were there. You know, I, I covered the first, it's on my wall, actually uh, the first ever mass shooting, uh, at a gaming event. Um, I went out there the week after it happened and dug into what happened cause there was a lot of media hysteria, both on the left and the right side of the political aisle about gaming causing violence. You know, the biggest thing is that, and it's not exclusive to gaming, social internet, Twitter, Reddit, 4chan, 8chan sees this too. Like, gaming is a place for all communities, positive and negative, and it, and it finds itself, especially like multiplayer games, find themselves at the center of many of the negative communities. It's not always the game's fault. Sometimes it is, but. It's not always the game's fault. It's just they're gathering places. There will always be gathering places for bad people. Um, I think what really scares me is the pathway to finding the bad people is a little bit too easy. Um, If you're just like green, you're a young person or a teenager or whatever that you don't have a sense of acceptance and community in your actual life so you're lonely and you're on the internet and you're trying to find something and you find acceptance it's terrible people it's really bad people i mean that's kind of what Aiden ross did he's a huge influencer he found a community around bad people that accept him and and praise him and give him affirmation and it and it scares me it actually this is probably the one thing in my life that like keeps me up at night more than anything um because i think about what well, you just asked a lot um because like doesn't matter the influence the good people in the space have and nobody's perfect. People definitely do bad things. Uh, even the, even the people that you think are good role models, but it's like, what, what is their bad thing relative to like what the worst outcome is. Right. And, um, but for the people you mentioned, it's not as bad as, uh, it's not as bad as it could be. Um, but I do think more broadly, like, their reach is not infinite and their reach won't display to everyone. Um, it's really important to have good role models in gaming, but it's not enough. Uh, and I'm just like, not really sure the fix here, to be honest. Um, as long as multiplayer gaming exists, as long as communities on the internet exist, there will always be places for the people to do bad things and, uh, gaming going to continue. I mean, I just talked about how the social internet's dying. Where do you think some of these places are going to move? Right, like, where do you think these communities are going to move? They're going to move into places like video games, um, and Discord, which they already have. A lot of, there are a lot of bad communities on Discord, um, that you don't know about because they're private, and Discord doesn't. And I I criticize Discord a lot for this. Discord doesn't police it. They don't have a chat bot that scrolls through and looks for harmful messages. We know this because the Buffalo shooter basically is using a Discord as a manifesto um by himself nobody else is in the discord but basically like just sat there and wrote about killing black people and how he was going to do it like there needs to be a chat that scrolls through these things and finds like harm you know pretty immediately just like it does on facebook just like it does on twitter etc and it identifies harm and it gets good at preventing it um and referring it to law enforcement where applicable because yeah i mean it it's it's not gonna get any better it's gonna get worse because they're gonna have to find new places and they're gonna find it in games uh i'm really worried about the politicization of that because it's not the game fault inherently um in many cases it's just a byproduct of being a place for community gathering
0: all right that was very insightful and i don't want to necessarily end this on a somber note so i'll just for all of the the negative stuff that we've talked about today with whether it be the death of the internet or or what have you, what the next step is. What's one of your sort of favorite successes from, uh, the gaming sphere for the last two years?
1: One of the things that excites me the most, though, as more of a generalization, it's just happened a little bit more the past few years and I've noticed it because I've been reporting on it is, um, how influencers and charities are using the internet and, and working with influencers to benefit these charities. Um, It's another case of like, what we were talking about earlier that like the bigger, the bigger charities, because they just like, they're so corporate and they have like so many approval strategies that like, it just gets hung up, right? Like in so many in the process, but it started to get over that because like charities are uniquely different than like, you know, big media corporations or big, big commercial companies, retail companies, et cetera. Like charities need to raise money. And if there's ever an opportunity to raise money, they will do it um, within reason. And so they've been a little bit more open to influence and adaptation in general. And I've seen some negatives about that, but I've also seen a lot of positives and that makes me really excited. You know, I like like greater clash and, and stuff that, uh, the idea team, et cetera, has done like boxing events with influencers that like aren't traditional boxers doing this. That's really cool. Some of the other gaming charity stuff that's been done by people like Dr. Olubo and Ludwig and others too. is really cool. Um, I'm glad that this is happening because like, you know, the, the charity playbook's changing all the time. I've talked to a lot of people in, the, in that space about this. Like, the charity playbook's like, oh, you know, you, you table at, like, a Relay for Life or something, and, like, I, you know, I did that, or, like, I worked with the Alzheimer's Association for a period of time because everybody has Alzheimer's, and I felt very passionate about it, and I was, like, on their committee board in Brooklyn for a couple of years and, and basically, like, helped put together their race that they did or their walk that they did for Alzheimer's, um, and we'd go table at these events, like, you know, Brooklyn Pride, etc. And, like, that's the traditional way to raise money for charities. and But I think people are now learning a little bit more about how to use the Internet and how to use influencers, et cetera, and gaming as a proxy to be able to do this. And um, that's really exciting to me. That's the way that I think we can impact positive, you know, in a positive way the world uh, as an influencer and gaming community. Um, Because, I mean, even though healthcare is getting better, even though you know the internet is doing a lot of things and research is only getting better, we're only getting smarter as a society, society um, and as a world. Uh, it Doesn't mean that like there aren't going to be like crazy diseases and other things that people have to tackle and like education and other all these various different charities that exist that that's not going away. Um, so the charities are adapting, and it's good to see it because I'm excited uh, the the potential value that gaming and influencers can offer to them and and helping with their their work
0: if uh people want to find you or your stuff where where should we send them
1: i am at jacob wolf on twitter uh pretty straightforward uh jacob on substack um just type jacob wolf your url bar you'll find me um those are the two big ones easiest way to find them you'll see visionaries the podcast i host through those two things uh listen to the show um really really love what we're doing. It's a great show and I have a lot of fun with it.
0: Um, and yeah, thank you for having me on the pod. Like absolutely Jacob. I really appreciate you being here and I think this was a super valuable conversation and it was uh, great to reconnect after all these years. So thanks for coming on.
1: No problem.